This is Brian Bailey from Charlottesville, Virginia, and I'm joined with Mark Sweeney from Windermere, Florida. We are your guides to this episode of In the Hunt. We are going to bring clarity to this complex game of golf and help you reach your next level of performance. So if you're ready to step up your game, join us on the hunt. Welcome to this episode of In the Hunt. This is Brian Bailey here based in Charlottesville, Virginia. A beautiful spring day. Our weather up here has been spectacular, mid-60s. Uh, makes me love living in the Mid-Atlantic. And of course, I'm joined with Mark Sweeney. Mark, how are you doing today? I'm doing fine. Sitting here, just been fighting the rain for the last couple of days. A lot of computer work going on. Uh, that's all right. We need a lot of computer work to get done here. No kidding. <laughs> There's no but, uh, shortage. I, I think uh, today's episode will be kind of kind of really driven by a lot of the college programs that we work with we're going to discuss match play uh kind of a new thing inside of the ncaa in the last few years is they've actually changed a lot of their conference tournaments and even uh postseason play for the ncaa championship the final rounds is a match play situation so you know making it ready for for television and, and create that viewing viewership out there they've really changed the format from stroke play to match play and that's something that I don't think a lot of athletes inside of the, the golf world think about very often or participate in. So we're going to kind of take a data science look of match play and what are some things as a coach and a player to be able to strategize to get the right team on the course and then also have the right game plan to attack the golf course and your opponent. So, uh, Mark, you want to jump in here about picking the right team via match play? Match play, yeah, match play is a different animal because you, you only got to beat half the field, you know what I mean, to win. You don't have to beat the whole field. You got to beat half the field to win. Um, and so the big question comes up, especially in college, when, you're, when you've got to win three matches out of five, right? And so how do you organize your team? How do you pick your matchup so that you got to win three out of five? Or like for President's Cup, I think they had 12 or 15 guys playing and you had to win the majority of the points. Um, and actually becomes a largely becomes a big data science question because depending on how you pick your matchups, you can have dramatically different probabilities of winning. And we've seen teams where you could go anywhere from winning 60% chance to only 12% chance if you get the wrong matchups. And so this is where the, and they're not, they're not random, right? So this is where the, the, the um, coaches really kick in and try to optimize who should play who so that I can maximize my chance of getting to three points. And that's something that we can actually do pretty effectively uh, with the data science because we do know how all these players have played against each other over the last year or two because all it's all all the data's out there, all the public data's out there. No, I think it's really I think it's really neat because again, a lot of times it's a it's a wing and a guess, right? I feel like X player would play great against Y player, but it really comes down to the question of as you're trying to optimizing teams, you might have to send out that sacrificial lamb, right? Their best player might have odds to beat your entire squad. So why do I send out my best player against their best player when I can send out, you know, the, the sacrificial number five to go take on their best player. But now I have the ability to win four of the matches and I'll just kind of sit now. Can I win three out of four and give up five unless, unless my five player just does something spectacular. But again, it's, it's understanding putting odds in your favor. Don't always need to be one versus one and five versus five. You've got to, you've got to think of what's right for you to win. Right. And so, for example, you know, we were looking at a uh, SEC team last week and their number one player um, 
always beat, or let's say 75% of the time or better beat the, every player on the other team. So I had a, had a winning record against every player on the other team. Their number five player had a losing record against every player on the other team. And then the players in the middle were some wins, some losses. So you take your number one, you say, okay, who do I match them against? They're going to beat everybody. But let's say they beat the number player, the number one player 84% of the time, and the number two player 82% of the time, and number three player 73% of the time. Well, how do you, you know, the odds are she's going to win however you put her out there, but then you've got to consider the players that are left over, who are they going to then play, right? And it actually becomes a fairly, not I wouldn't say complicated, but it definitely becomes a um, uh, interrelational model of when I put number one against their number one or their number two, then who am I going to put against their number two and their number three? Um, who do I, if I have a player who's losing against everybody, doesn't matter who she plays. Um, maybe, maybe not, you know? And, and so what we go, do is we go through and we basically run every single scenario and say which one, which one probabilistically gives you the highest chance of winning or getting to three points. Sometimes you, sometimes it's hard to get three points, to be honest. Um, but you know, if, if I can make my odds fifty five percent winning versus a good team, um, as opposed to twenty percent winning, well, I want to know what those odds are and see if I can get as close to those matchups as, as possible. Yeah, I think that's the really I, for a lot of people that don't know behind the scenes inside of team match play situations. At one point, the coaches sit down and go back and forth. Player X, I'm going to send out player Y, and then the next co- the other coach will say, I'm sending out player X. The coach will counter with player Y. So there's there's no set way of these happening. There's an actual interaction going on. So being able to sit there with a sheet of paper or app in front of you, uh, things that we provide for some of our consulting programs is to give you that idea of here's kind of the matchup. So Mark and I are right now deciding which players are going out. I have a sheet of paper in front of me that shows me my ideal matchups and how I can kind of parry and say, oh, wait, they just kind of sent a player that I didn't expect. How, how am I going to reshuffle what's still in my best interest going forward? So again, not having that information again is a, is a wag coaching move, which is a wild uh, asterisk guess. But again, if, if you just spend time, create a little bit of data, you can really start to see how you can create a team and that'll benefit you to the best, or at least create a team that gives you your best chance of performing. Right. And, and then what makes um, what's interesting to me is like if you take Solheim Cup last year, I believe what they did is everybody just picked a, a time that their player was going to go out. So they'll be first out, second out, third out, fourth out. Each team did that independently. And then, you know, the first tee got matched with the first tee of the other team. And the, so they weren't actually matching players against each other. They were saying, who's my first slot through my whatever, 12 slot, eight slot, however many went out that day. Um, and if you think about that, that creates a completely random, but very close to a very random matchup scenario, which could wildly swing in either direction, depending on what that random number comes up, you know? And then to me, to me, that takes kind of the skill out of coaching where the coach is saying, well, I'm going to, I'm going to put so-and-so, you know, my A player against your B plus player and, and kind of parry back and forth like that. And, and so I'm not a big fan of that where they just kind of get random matchups because it really, really does matter statistically who's playing who um, for, you know, the probability of who's going to win. No, and again, I think also inside of big team events, you you know, there there's a momentum, there's, you know, the human element to it. So, again, getting the matchups right out the gate to maybe create that little bit of momentum. You know, you, you hear it all the time in 
from the commentators inside of the Ryder Cup. They have momentum. They're coming out early. They're scoring points. You know, what is that worth? And again, I think if you go completely random, it's just to me, there is no skill. There's no way of, of providing, you know, a statistical advantage for one team or the other to kind of, you know, to take a point and counterpoint. You know, so again, I don't think that's fair, but I know inside of collegiate golf, uh, they do the back and forth. And I think, again, that 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 concept of maybe I send out my best couple players out the gate if I can if I can get the right matchup and create that momentum, you know, so the team can feel feed off of it. Or, you know, do I have a couple stalwarts at the end? Again, I have a maybe my one and two never lose. You know, I just put them in the anchor and just say, hey, we know we're going to win one and two out the back. Don't even, you know, so the other three of you going out, you just need to win one of these matches because we know the stalwarts in the back are just, they're just going to, you know, bludgeon whoever they play. So, you know, again, that concept is, though, if you don't have the ability to set these teams, like you said, it's just, it's just random. And if you want to play random games, you know, go play some board games. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We actually did the uh, President's Cup, what was it, two years ago, I guess now. And even though the U.S. was down um, in the final pairing in the final day, pretty much the pretty much every scenario we ran had the U.S. team winning. Um, basically, we said that even though they're down, however many points they were down, the, the even the matchups, even there were there were a lot of different potential matchups which all resulted in a win. I think even a random matchup resulted in the U.S. winning, and they obviously ended up winning. So that was interesting to see where it was less important what the actual matchups were because they were just stronger going in um, versus when you get very closely matched teams. And we see within conferences, we get teams where you match up them against each other and the odds are like 52, 48 in one person's favor or 55, 45. You know, it's rarely a team is going to beat you 75% of the chance. Like, like we just don't see that. No, and I, I agree that one speaks to the strength of college golf and also the kind of the parity from one to five in a lot of programs. There's not a huge, you know, gone are the days of having five All-Americans on your on your team collegially. It's you you have one, two studs, and then it kind of starts kind of just, you know, that that slow trickle down to that five spot. And they all most teams really look similar. So again, I think this is where if if both teams are looking really similar coming into an event. Any statistical advantage I can find is of the utmost importance. Yes, uh, no question about that. So then the big thing is if you're actually going and you're picking back and forth with the other captain, um, you either got to have a spreadsheet in front of you saying, if they move here, I'm going to move there, kind of like a, like a chess match, um, or you've got to real-time run the numbers. And, and um, I, I know we definitely provide some of that data to the, uh, the coaches um, to be able to make better decisions, but you're only in, you know, you only have control over, let's say half of the matchups. No, exactly. And, and again, it's, you know, there, it's not a, it's not a foolproof science, but again, we're just looking for, can we find a little leg up? Can we get a, just a little nudge? Can we tweak, can we tweak a matchup, one or two matchups that I have control of setting up and really create what I need to see? I know a couple of the college teams that we've helped, They've gone into the meetings and they've walked away and they're like, ah, we nailed it. Two of the people were playing, you know, two other people, but the ratio was roughly the same. So it was a wash. So it was the perfect matchup for us. Uh, so again, I think just going in there with a little bit of data compared to a coaching staff across from you with no data already, you are at an advantage. And then again, if you can start getting those numbers that looking correctly, uh, who knows where that advantage could lead to. 
Well, that's the thing, you know, and you you know, you also want to look at some trends because we can say, well, over the season, you know, we, we saw a player of the SEC championship over the season hadn't played great and then played spectacular leading into match play. And so then you're like, okay, well, hold on a second. <laughs> you know, either they like this course a lot or, you know, they found something in their swing or whatever it is, but suddenly they're a different player than they were before. And if, and if you don't have access to that information, um, whether they're players on your team or on somebody else's team, you're definitely at a disadvantage. No, I agree. So I think this is exciting. So now I've, let's say we're, we've got our coach's shoes on and we just created these great matchups. So now my players are getting ready to go on the golf course. So how can I give them good information to be able to, one, attack the golf course? Because in match play, it's always you against the golf course. But you're also head-to-head with another player. Any, any good thoughts on that? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, it's, it, you know, at that point, you know, it depends who you're playing, obviously, what their strengths and weaknesses are versus you. I mean, if you're a short player going against a long player, um, I mean, it's kind of too late at that point to say, well, you better chip and putt really well. <laughs> but but you're going to have to you're going to have to match, you know, because match play is is really about making birdies more than the blow ups. Right. So you're probably going to have to get a little more aggressive Um because you really don't get penalized if they if they beat you, they beat you, whether it's by one or by four um, on the individual hole, right? So you really need to generally need to be thinking making birdies and match play. Is, is that has that been your experience? Because I know you've done tons of it. Yeah, I'd say in the college ranks, it's it's a bunch of birdies to win and occasionally par wins. <laughs> you know, it, yeah. it's not the Ryder Cup. Um, so so birdies and pars tend to be you know pars tend to win. A disproportionate amount of uh, of play out there as well, but I, I agree with you. I think understanding strengths and weaknesses of a of a of an opponent. So you know, we create dossiers for teams showing strengths and weaknesses of what the field does on a golf course. But then being able to maybe even take that information and say, hey, here's strengths and weaknesses of this player, and then what do I need to do inside of my my strategies on maybe how to neutralize, you know, uh, an opponent's strength. You know, I can't. Again, going back to they're a long hitter, I'm a short hitter. Well, maybe I got to be a little more aggressive on that par five and try to cut a corner and do something a little bit different to try to get make sure I have a good opportunity for birdie where, you know, they're getting up on the green and two and, you know, they're kind of locking in birdie. So I think a lot of that is you've got to be aggressive. That is the beauty of match play. It's it's mano y mano. But again, I think, you know, again, making good informed decisions and saying this player is long. I can neutralize maybe a couple of things here, but they're also weak in this category and I can actually attack and be aggressive in this part and maybe, you know, or maybe pull back on maybe their par three scoring is not great with mid to long irons. Maybe I come up with a different game plan on par threes. So again, you know, it's done in every sport, you know, football says, Hey, I can't throw passes in the flats because of the way that they roll their defense or pitcher says, Hey, I can't throw to player X in these two zones because, you know, he's going to hit it out of the ballpark. So every sport has head-to-head matchups and understanding what's happening. Uh, I think it's time for golf to enter the data world on this. I agree. That's why we're doing it, right? <laughs> the GameForge teams already have access to this uh, from us on a consulting level, but as, as most of the things we build, we'll probably build it into the system where you can actually go in team by team and match your players up against the other team's players and get an optimization for what's your best matchup percentage versus a random one. No, I agree. So I I think, again, creating this 
in the system. And then hopefully, like I said, outside of college players, as we get more and more mini tours and players from around the world, if we can get the data for you and create these matchups to benefit you and no matter where you're playing in the world, we'll, we'll provide that for you as well. But again, I think it's time for, for we as a industry uh, to start actually using data science um, to benefit the player uh, and how to be able to perform best under different circumstances. We're getting really good, you know, buy-in with stroke play, but match play is still there and it's definitely a, a area that needs to be improved upon. Definitely. All right. So I think we're getting ready to, we'll parry out of match play. We're going to talk about some new additions inside of GameForge. Uh, we have our video platform, which is coming, which will give more information. Looks like hopefully the first week of May, we're going to kick this puppy off. Uh, so be looking for that via social media and through the podcast. But also inside the system, we're getting ready to add a new figure, which we call P12. Uh, everyone in the system knows about P6. That's your ability to hit it within six feet uh, and, and actually recording that and actual showing conversion rates. What we're going to do is we're going to add P12. Mark, you want to jump in on that? And I'll share my screen as you're talking. P12 is a, uh, is, a, is a fascinating value because, you know, P6 is basically where you're going to get to say par from, but P12 is kind of the next zone out. Um, P12 is when you're scrambling and you hit it inside 12 feet versus inside six feet. So it's not a great scrambling shot, but you're also not hitting it out to 20 or 30 feet or pitching from the fairway or, you know, or 30 yards out trying to say par from 30 yards out. So it's kind of your next zone. So even if we think about, you know, short putts, there's kind of the one to four foot zone and the, you know, five to eight foot zone. Well, this is the next zone for um, wedge proximity. And depending on where you are, P12 kicks in as important because it's something that as players get better and better uh, through their levels, that continues to get better and better and better also. No, exactly. And, and uh, I'm sorry for those that uh, can't see my slide, but we, what we have in front of us is actually kind of talking about different developing steps inside of golf from a player that's shooting roughly 90s to the tour level. What you see is P12 is for, you know, kind of a 90 shooter is a little over 40%, pushing 50% of their shots of chip shots are usually 12 feet and in, where a tour player is really pushing 80%. So again, kind of understanding that a tour player, par value minus one, 80% of the time, no matter where they are in the golf course, are hitting it with inside of 12 feet. And of that, 60% of those are roughly inside of six feet. So again, that, that, that correlation of no matter where a high-end tour professional is, when they're hitting that par value minus one, whether it be on the fringe or hitting a wedge from 120 yards, they're getting it you know, 80% of the time inside of 12 feet, where you know, the, the, the lesser golfer is not nearly converting that as well. And that's why their scrambling rates are 50% or higher because – 80% of their shots are trying to say par from 12 feet and in whether where they're going to make 50% or more easily. Right. So uh, you can see why, why that's such an important number. And, and if you watch PJ tour, I mean, you'll see guys get inside 12 feet from all over the golf course, like all day long, all over the golf course. Um, and that, that's a skill that obviously like everything else in golf, as you progress has to get better and better and better, but it is something that we are, are going to start tracking because definitely at the, um, lower levels of golf, as you work up to your advanced, uh, you know, elite tour player, uh, it's something that we have to see moving. And if we don't see that moving, then your scrambling is not going to move. Your bogeys aren't going to go down 
and your score is not going to get better. You're going to put all your, all your pressure on making more birdies, which is not sustainable. No, I agree. And I think the really neat part is as, as a developing player, someone we're talking that's going to be shooting mid to upper eighties, you know, kind of gotten past that 90 line, 50% of their shots are inside of P12. And of those 50, it always comes back to this 50, 50 rule somewhere. Right. 50, and 50%, 50 all over of those the place, isn't it? So inside the developing stage, how can I train better? You know, if I'm in the 80s, how can I train? Well, I'm going to drop 10 balls. 50% of those need to be within five feet. I mean, 12 feet. And half of those need to be within six feet. So I'm hitting from all different distances, all different lie conditions. This gives you a good concept of what is needed to train. And then once again, as we're starting to move forward, those numbers start changing, right? An advanced player is someone that's, you know, shooting in the upper 70s. They're looking at 60% of all their shots roughly are from p12 and then of that roughly again it's pretty close to the 50 50 rule again roughly half of those now they're hitting six shots inside of p12 and three of those are going to be p6 so the the, again it's so crazy but this this concept of understanding what what is expected my p6 number is this but then when i miss my p6 is my next zone p12 Am I keeping it, you know, in the ballpark and giving myself the chance to, again, make putts? The chances of me making a 12-footer grow exponentially compared to me being able to make a 20-footer. So, again, that concept of, again, understanding and managing where you are and what the different lie conditions are and, of course, what the green is, maybe I can only get it to 12 feet. It's okay. Can I get it within that 12-foot circle or that 24-foot diameter? So, again, P12 is a new addition coming. It's just going to give you a little bit more insight, especially for, you know, more of the developing and learning player moving your way up to, you know, that elite level will give them just more insight and a better way to train. It's interesting because the P6, P12 lines look almost identical to the in position to green and regulation lines. They do. Like you, like if, if they didn't have a label on them, you couldn't tell the difference. It really does. <laughs> You know, it starts off at 50, kind of 50-50 and then works its way to more like 60% or so, you know, kind of squeezes as you get better and better, um, which just shows you that that better players, whether it's approach shots for birdie or scrambling approach shots, they're getting a higher and higher percentage inside those circles and more and more, a bigger and bigger percentage inside the inner circle versus the secondary circle. No, I, it, I agree. And it just shows you that the better player just does it better. That that brilliant. <laughs> the better player to this podcast. Today's words of wisdom. Yes, yes. Mark that down. <laughs> Captain Obvious. <laughs> I'll bet you the worst players do it worse, also. Well, I don't know. On occasions they get lucky. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And then when you're sitting at the 19th hole, that's all you hear about. <laughs> the the one shot. Exactly. <laughs> Did you see that chip? <laughs> so, and if you're if you're trained this P12, um, you know, these are these are not chipping from the fringe shots these are 15 to 20 yards from rough from bunkers from other native area you know what we call Um, but these these are not your easy little chips that you see people doing around the putting green all day long if you want to really you know hit wedge shots on your putting green in practice go over to the first tee and hit it from close to the first tee like give yourself an actual proper pitch shot in not not these little baby chips no, I agree. And, and again, to me, it's just more insight. Uh, I'm a, I do a lot of short game work with a lot of players and that was always the extra zone. We always talked about it. We didn't put it in game forge, but it, when I worked with players, we always said, Hey, the goal is P, you know, P six. Can we hit it within that 12 foot diameter? 
But then I always stress after that, it was, let's actually push this out to a P12, a 24 foot diameter. And again, that, that sounds huge. Sounds like a huge target. But again, when you're hitting a 30 yard pitch shot from the rough, trust me, I just shot some videos on this. Yeah. I didn't do that great. Yeah. Short-sighted, uh, whatever. Yeah. Now compare that, compare that to the classic three foot circle, right? You put a three foot circle around. That's like, that's like shooting a rifle and only having the bullseye ring and no outer rings at all. Right. <laughs> or, 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 or playing darts and only having the bullseye and no other points for any other rings at all. You're either great or not. You're either great or you stink. Right. And, and the reality is, is that that three foot circle is just a really tiny circle for the majority of your scrambling shots. And so you need to push it out and give some points for the six footers, give some points for the 12 footers, and then maybe no points after that. But Ooh, that sounds like a new <laughs> game that's coming into game for us. We're going to call that darts. Hey, hey there, you go. Go. <laughs> there you go. I like it. But uh, so, uh, and I think the really neat part is, is we just shared our screen and showed that graph. And that'll be something you'll be able to see in our video platform coming up in May. Yeah. Hint, hint. Hint, hint. So, uh, like I said, we're going to take all of our podcasts and we'll start sharing our screens better and start to provide you some of that, the ability to watch a video of what we're doing and, and, and uh, give you a little, a little bit of a video backup to what we talk about. And I know inside of podcasts, when we start talking numbers and graphs and you don't have it in front of you, it can be hard to sometimes follow the conversation. This is a question we've gotten from a lot of people is how can I watch these videos? Well, we've uploaded all of our podcasts and we'll continue to uh, do that in the coming months inside of the platform, uh, our video platform. So really exciting things coming from, from our end and we hope you enjoy them. Anything you want to close out the show with, Mark? And uh, in the video platform, you know, because it's going to be more and more available on video, we will continue to do more and more visuals and graphics and charts and things like that, which when you see them are really kind of mind blowing every once in a while versus just kind of listening to it on a podcast. Oh, my God. That means we'll have to actually prepare for these shows. A little bit, a little bit more than today. Right. <laughs> oh, man, This is starting to become a job. <laughs> We have to decide more than three minutes ahead of time that we're going to do one. That's right. And I think the other really cool part too, is that my plan is I want to release all podcasts first uh, videos on the actual platform. And then the audio version will come out a couple of days later. So when you're part of the video platform, you'll have first access to all podcasts and of course have all the visuals that go with it. Uh, but again, a lot of exciting stuff coming. We, uh, the skunk works are, are starting to, the iceberg's starting to come above the water. We're starting to see some things uh, starting <laughs> to pop up. And there's going to be a huge release throughout the summer. And we're really going to be um, challenging the golf industry and challenging a lot of people's beliefs on that way they've been doing a lot of stuff. So really exciting stuff coming. Stay tuned. We'll be making friends as always. Always. always <laughs> making friends. Only to the ones that like us. Yeah. <laughs> well, we want to thank you for joining us on In the Hunt. We're excited to uh, keep bringing you information like this. I've been getting tons of feedback and uh, requests on upcoming videos. So please keep sending those. And we appreciate your time. You know, time is money. And thank you for spending it here on us. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Keep your, keep your questions coming. This has been a Fuel production.